You're going to love this one, guys. This week it is a hamstring masterclass with the man himself, Dr. Mack, and along with him, Adam Russell, physio to the Gold Coast Titans. Let's enjoy. Welcome to the Body Science Podcast, bringing you everything you need, want, and should know about health, fitness, nutrition, and training. As always, the information contained in this podcast is for the information purposes only and is not designed to diagnose or be prescriptive to treat, prevent, or manage any injury, disease, or other health-related condition. Burn the fat and feed the muscles with this high-protein, low-carb, low-fat, best-tasting daily protein powder. Hydroxyburn Lean 5 proteins are released in a sustained chronological order, therefore maintaining their different absorption rates, fast and slow, ensuring constant muscle fuel so you stay fit, happy and healthy. This synergistic blend also includes 17 vitamins and minerals, added carnitine, and a proprietary blend of digestive enzymes, Digizyme and Arafi Prebiotic to aid digestive health. Hey, welcome to Body Science HQ, the home of Fit, Happy and Healthy. Today with me, the big dog, Dr. Matt, we're going to talk about debilitating injuries in sport and exercise, the common ones, that is. And you've brought on a special guest today who you believe is one of the best sports and exercise physios in the market. Yes, mate. So we, uh, <laughs> it's a big, big yep. plug. We're, we're going to talk about, really only going to nail possibly the most debilitating injury in sport and exercise. We're going to talk about hamstring strains today. So Adam Russell's in the house. Uh, Adam and I go back a long way. We did uh, we did physio together yes, back in did. the day. For those who didn't know that I am a physio, but I don't. Yeah. Uh, I keep that under You've got my a master's hat. in physio, haven't you? I do, but... Yeah. What about you, Adam? That... Yes, I've got a master's as well as a master's in sports and exercise physio, oh, so... Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you want to do the intro or, or what you want to I do. I first met Adam when I was going to surf the Maldives and I needed a bit of back work, but the real reason is he is the head physio at the Titans. So you've been there two years? Three years. Yeah, second year now. Second year now. Uh, how did the boys go uh, hamstrings last year? Mac, you want to tell us? I don't know. Yeah? I don't know, but Adam comes... <laughs> he's, he's been around, mate. Uh, Gold Coast Suns, uh, Queensland Reds. Uh, you really got Reds. Comp- yeah. I was at the Reds oh. back in 2005 to 2007 okay. and went yeah. to spend a couple of years at the Lions, Brisbane Lions That's in the right. AFL. Like most things in our world, there's often some misconceptions around, you know, injury, how injuries occur, what injuries, you know, what constitutes injury, what type of injuries are occurring because there's, there's a number of different types. Uh, the hamstrings are complicated. We talk about this all the time. The Do you glute... want to talk about the mechanics of it? Well, we'll get to it and yep. I'll, I'll get Adam to contribute. But, you know, the glutes get a lot of publicity in, in the fitness world and as I've been on the record saying that, you know, glutes are easy to train whereas hamstrings being biarticular in nature in that bicep femoris anyway, I should say, is biarticular which means it crosses two joints at the, the hip effectively and then at, at the knee. So that presents some unique features around the mechanics of it and I think we'll get to that. I think probably touch on the anatomy a little bit mm-hmm. early on, just to, to give us a brief overview of the hamstring complex itself, what constitutes an injury, and then we'll talk about, because there's some modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors that yeah. might increase your propensity for injury, and that is, obviously, there's some things we can perhaps improve, and there's some stuff you can't do anything about, so age and things like that. And then I think we'll get into probably more, Adam will have, you know, comprehensive contribution around getting an accurate diagnosis, what that looks like, what, what are the different types of injuries, and then ultimately we'll get into a chat around, you know, what are some strategies around eliminating risk or not mitigating risk and then uh, getting people back on track because re-injury is huge, right? I don't know if you want to talk now, Adam, but, uh, you know, so that's where we want to head for the next half an hour or so, just like talking it. about that. Anyone who wants to uh, check out Adam, it's at Adam Russell Physio on the that's Big Insty. How's it rate compared to yours, I'm sure mate? it's not quite as comprehensive as mine. Okay. Mine's I killer. I don't have yeah. a cat on mine. You don't so have a cat? I'll okay. put that out there. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we all need a wingman and <laughs> my little man, Brucey, he goes, all right, I rescued him, mate. 
It's all good. I like it. So hamstring masterclass, let's go. Where are we at? Well, let's talk anatomy. Let's talk, you know, I don't know, Adam, if you want to run through the, the muscles that make up the hammy itself, and then we might get into some of the complexities around mechanics leading to, or what type of mechanics lead to injury. Let's, let's go through that. Well, we'll start with the hamstring muscle group. There's actual four muscles that, that uh, make up the hamstring complex. So there's the most commonly injured, which is the one on the outside, which is the biceps uh, femoris long head. It also has uh, another, it has a short head component as well to it. And then you've got- When you're saying long heads and short heads, what are you talking to for the punter out there that doesn't get so what you're So the long about? head is the biarticulum. So it, it actually has a, a slip that attaches up into the hip joint mm-hmm. and then also attaches down onto the, the outside. So on, so on your longer. fibula, which is your little bone on the outside, just behind, on your knee. Uh, and then your short head actually starts up halfway down your thigh bone. So that's your long head and your short head. They'd make up your lateral complex of your hamstrings. After that, you've got your medial complex, which is your semitendinosus and your semimembranosus. Now they're not as commonly injured. Long-headed biceps is by far the most commonly injured of the of the four. And that's probably where we'll spend most of our time today because that's that would uh, where... So why is that most commonly injured? Well, like, yeah. Great question. So if you think about the, the function of the hamstrings, what does it do? So the hamstring extends the hip, so it puts us into an extension position and it flexes the knee. So it shortens the angle at the knee. So it plays a role if we cut to the chase with regard to running mechanics. Okay, so one of the most, and there's, for the haters out there, we can argue the toss around current evidence-based practice with respect to when hamstrings are most commonly injured. The vast majority of research would support the position that says that as you bring your foot down to the ground, as you're running, as let's say I'm I'm running along, as I bring my foot down to the ground, I am going to extend through the hip as I bring my leg down and I'm going to extend at the knee. I'm going to straighten out my leg. So we call that the terminal phase of the swing phase. Mm -hmm. So my foot's off the ground, that's the swing phase. So the terminal is in the end of that phase as I bring my foot down to the ground for what's called heel strike is vastly considered the point where we tear a hamstring. Now- Is that because it's taking all the load? Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. so it's it's being pulled at both ends effectively, right? So you have this position whereby it's at its maximum or peak tension, effectively. Mm-hmm. So if anything's going to have a problem, it's going to be when it's under the most load. So there is also an argument or, or evidence that would support that when you your foot hits the ground, there's a comprehensive amount of load that's also borne by the hamstrings. So maybe that's another point where it tears as well. And you know what? Probably, you know, there's no one, you know, one and only way in which people tear their hamstrings. So that, that's one of the, the key features or one of the key considerations around when it tears. Now, when you're running along, you may not feel it till you're sort of halfway through your foot being on the ground and that's when you'll see people grab their hammy and they go oh I'm in trouble here and that's one of the most commonly you know reported points of injury with regard to the hamstring and that's important right and that's important for getting into a conversation now around well what what are the risk factors associated with that and we can I'll get Adam to contribute in here around you know sort of modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors so there's been a lot of work done by some guys uh, Dave Opar and there's there's a whole shield yeah Tony Shield there's a and they're local people from, from Australia who've done a lot of really good research around hamstring injury and what causes hamstring injury, what are the risk factors associated with that. And they've been big, and we'll get to it, talking about exercises like the Nordic hamstring exercise that's been grabbed from the rehab world, in my opinion, by the mainstream health and fitness world and being sort of shotgun approach given to everybody to try and develop hamstrings. And, and it, it's not what it's for, but we'll get we'll get to that. So, I mean, Adam, you want to you make some contribution around some of the modifiable versus non modifiable things yeah look, the, the non before we start here are we talking about an athlete or just uh everybody so this is your elite athlete who's going out and, and doing high speed running in a, on an yep. afl field 
a rugby league field, rugby union field, as well as the the punter that's just the, the weekend warrior that's going out and playing at a you know community level, or the person that's out going for a run. You know, puts in, does a couple of, does some fartlek work, does a bit of speed work, so. bit of hit work, mate, bit of high intensity intervals, garage training. Love it. What do you call it? What do you call your stuff? Junkyard dogs. Junkyard dogs. <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> no. Uh, no. Good. Continue. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. So Sorry. the the, un, the non-modifiable risk factors is the biggest one is have you hurt your hamstring before? Yeah. So pretty much out of all of the uh, research that's gone on the on the predictors of injury, if you've had that injury before, you're more likely to get it again versus the bloke that hasn't. So that's that's one that you can't change. You can't change the past. The other one is age. So the older we get, the more likely we are to have suffer a hamstring strain as well. So if you can put those two together, you've got an old athlete, an older athlete that's had a past history, you've got a fair chance of getting having it happen again. And so the stats on that, so if you look at Opar's work from, I think it was about 2012, they're pretty confronting stats. So I think uh, age for every year above 24, which is not old, right? For every year, it's about a 1.3 to 1.8 increase in risk. Really? Yeah. Wow. And so, and if you've had a, if you tore your hamstring in 2018, you are 11 times more likely to tear it again in 2019. That's a lot, right? So there, and you might say, well, why is that? Well, that's probably around a conversation around rehab and early return to training, misdiagnosis and inappropriate management leads to increased scarring and some of the not some of the modifiable risk factors like fascicle length. So uh, they did a great study that group on uh, in in the A League. So they looked at fascicle length as well as their knee flexor strength, mm-hmm. and they found that if uh, you had a short fascicle length and your eccentric strength was down, you were in the they call it the quadrant of doom, and the longer your fascicle length and the stronger you were, the less likelihood you were of, of, of injuring. And that, that's at a, you know, the A-League's an elite level, so they're all full-time athletes. So if you then, you can quite easily then extrapolate that to the local community as well. And so a fascicle for the for the viewers and the listeners, we've talked about this before. If you think about what makes up a muscle, we have muscle filaments, and so we have the contractile elements. So that's your actin and myosin, troponin and tropomyosin, the little things that form what's called a sarcomere. They get bundled up into what's called, I suppose, a, a muscle fibre. And then we have they are then bundled up into what's called the endomysium and then that comp- that forms a fascicle. Think of a rope. You know, a rope's got lots of bound up little strains to it. Well, muscle's really similar. So a fascicle is one of those strands of the rope, effectively. So when they're short or long, that's a that's a key variable around risk of injury. So, so are we looking at that with athletes these days? Is that something you're, is that part of the management process? No, it's unfortunately at the moment, it's still, it's a pretty hard, it's a time consuming thing to do. Mm-hmm. So we don't like where I've been. We haven't gone to that pretty level. Pretty hard to measure. Yeah, yeah. it is hard. Yeah, it, it's pretty hard to measure. But there, there are exercises that have been, you know, reported to improve fascicle length. The Nordic's one, yep. eccentric loading. Did you talk about strength imbalances? No, we haven't spoken about strength yeah. imbalances yet. So, so that's some of the other, you know, multiple risk factors. So fascicle length's a big one. Even if you've got a disparity between, say, quadricep hamstring ratio or left versus right leg, you know, if you've got really strong hammies on the left and, you, and your right is, you know, as little as 0.8% disparity, that's a factor, right? So it doesn't have to be a huge amount of variation between one and the other. Because if you think about it, I'm running long over long periods of time, change of direction, you know, all of these sort of things, you know, rapid sprinting into jogging, into reacceleration, deceleration, all that sort of stuff. The amount of effect over time with fatigue and things like this becomes a becomes a feature so that a fairly what might seem to be a fairly innocuous sort of thing becomes a thing and flexibility i don't know adam we've all got opinions but in terms of i've seen people who have huge amounts oh sorry i'll I'll flick it around people who couldn't touch their toes 
never tore a muscle in their life because they're just, they've got terrible flexibility, but they're consistent with their inflexibility throughout the entire musculature. Whereas people who might have great flexibility, you know, can do, you know, the splits and all that sort of thing, may also not get injured, but probably got as much risk of injury as, as those that have got none. The problem is if left and right are different, that's a problem. And, and there's a number of tests around that are really simple to do, like need a wall and different things. So if you look, we talk about the kinetic chain. And like I've said in all the podcasts, nothing happens in isolation, right? There's always a cause and effect. If you've got a disparity in ankle range, so I mean how much you can move your ankle. If one's, if you've broken your ankle and you've got really poor range on one side and the other side's really good, then that means your gait is going to be affected. Therefore, the amount of load that's borne by your Achilles tendon, up into your knee, up into your hip, up into your hamstrings, the whole lot are going to be influenced by that. I mean, these are all features around risk. And part of the process at a, at a high end with elite guys is that we screen them, right? We, we do the screening and we identify, well, okay, here's the, here's the problem. Let's do something about it. The mainstreamers of the world in the health and fitness industry are, are less likely to get that. And they don't really learn about these risks until they've already torn something. What do you do about that? Yeah. What's, uh, what's some, some things we can I, do? I look at it like a cup. So if you've got decreased, you know, you, you want a cup and you want to make that cup as big as you can. Now, if you've got issues in your body, you're, you know, you lack, lack ankle range, so your dorsiflexion's down. All of a sudden, we're putting a little hole in that cup. So what we can do about that is is try and make sure, well, one is try and improve that impairment. So if they've only got a needle wall of two centimetres on one side and the other side's got a needle wall of 10 to 12, which is probably more, more average, then we need to make sure that we've the rest of that chain, the rest of that uh, link is, is is as good as we can. So that means making sure their calf strength's up, making sure their glute, making sure they've got hip range. A lot of those things that we can modify, we need to make sure that we keep them as, as good as we can to make up for the impairment up or down on the chain. And so, Mac, you, you mentioned there that you, you run a lot of programs with athletes to monitor and, and look at what's going. So what is someone who is, you know, like an executive that's training four or five times a week on F45 or doing a hit session or hitting one of the gyms, what should they be doing in a preventative process? Should we be going to a physio and going, can you just check me? How am I going? Am I aligned? Do they go to a chiro and get snapped back in? Like, before the chiros out there, I apologise for putting it like that, but I'm sitting with two physios then on the head. It's just... You said it, mate. <laughs> I, oh, I love the Cairo. He's all of it. And my, I've always got different leg lengths, maybe. That's why I've got hammy, nice eyes. We'll do no, missing good, sport later on. <laughs> no, you, um, you nearly rescued that. That's yeah, good. exactly. So what should we be doing? Like, do, do we just rock up to the physio and go, or do we go get massages regular? Like, I mean, obviously, I, people I, like in a massage, they feel like it, but we're talk, you're, you guys are talking about some specific things here in relation to, you know, like mm. knee height and... Yeah, I think the, one thing that's really important is is we work out what it is that that individual person wants to go to because they'll all everyone will have different impairments different risk factors so i think it's really important that you work out exactly what it is that you want to do so with some people you know if we go back to the cup if you're doing things that aren't going to completely empty the cup you you've got a little bit of you got a little bit of leeway there if you're wanting to go out and, and substantially increase anything you're doing then those impairments become magnified so if you're wanting to to start something new uh increase what you're already doing uh, that might be worthwhile then getting to a, a physio or uh, so we always say go see a doctor before you start training as the general you know warnings that we're told to say we should well, probably go see a physio 40, most people aren't going to go and see a doctor no. or anyone before they go and start an exercise program yeah. and don't you read the warnings on labels mate do they have warnings on labels <laughs> the thing I do the not thing, consume more than one mother in <laughs> a day uh, mate it's a rough guide honestly if you're going to be bothered with that stuff you're kidding yourself but and the 
reason I say that, I've got a, a like my gym, which you were bagging out a second ago. I a, wasn't bagging your no, gym. No, it's good because I bag out your insides, fair enough. Oh, it seriously wasn't. <laughs> I was giving it a wrap. <laughs> oh, junkyard dogs is a wrap. That's not a bag. Like I've got a lot of people who, you know, we've got ex-colonels, we've got people who are commercial managers, we've got all types of people train males and females, all different ages. And obviously the screening process of them was, can I come and train? So what I'm saying is, should people be going, looking at, I mean, and you've got a screening process when you go to a PT and you engage a PT, but you are talking a different level to what a PT screen was that I was taught when I did my Yeah, absolutely. You, you so, don't go to a PT for a musculoskeletal exactly. screen. So should we be going to a physio to get a little screen before we start? You probably should, but you're not going to do that. People realistically aren't going to do that, I don't think. What I think it comes down to is it's about balanced programming, right? So if you've got, if you are someone who, if you're in that demographic that you're talking about mm -hmm. right there, they're probably men and women probably in their late 30s, 40s, 50s, I don't know, right? But yep. they're probably... And plus. And plus, right? So they're, they're, they're in a, a demographic where they've got, probably got some war wounds in terms of Absolutely, you yeah. know, past history. They probably do want to want to go and see someone and, and just get a, you know, a screening done to see what's working properly. But for the younger demographic, they're not going to do that. It comes down to, you know, how can you avoid it? It comes down to balanced programming. And this is my bugbear with rehab is around the programming side of things. I, a lot of issues, we can talk about, well, we go back to the commentary around strength discrepancies, imbalances, and that sort mm. of thing. Now, they may be something that's happened over time, but mostly that's going to happen because of really bad programming. That's going to become uh, someone who all they do is squat and they never do any posterior chain work, or you know, all they do is hit, you know, they try and do their glute thrusts and they're not going to do any hamstring work. Or, you know, if you've got bias in your training, then eventually that'll show up and you're going to hurt yourself. And so that's where, again, buyer beware, but you talk about finding someone who's got some expertise around their programming, they've got good balanced programs. If you just want to get smashed up in the gym every day, you'll probably be okay. But once you get over, you know, once you're into your 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s, and you're going to try and do repeated sprint efforts, then there's a likelihood that something will break down and it'll probably be a hammy. Problem then is you tear your hammy, you know, you've already got issues around you know, perhaps, you know, sarcopenia. So sarcopenia is something that happens with age and we start to lose muscle fibers or muscle mass anyway. Then, you know, the healing's affected on the back of that, probably a slower rate of healing, you know, and you get into this sort of downhill sort of spiral of it doesn't ever get really properly fixed if we don't get a diagnosis and this is this is one talking actually adam around you know if you want to talk about the different types of hamstring injuries and the location of the injuries because then we're talking about muscle versus tendon and things like that yep. so so i think probably the the main parts of the of the hamstring complex that can get you can hurt is the proximal tendon so that's the, the part that goes in and sits on inserts onto the, the bone that you sit on your tuberosity. yeah right so, up under your gluteal so fold right up, up under your butt cheek and, and that's more of your degenerative that's your overuse type injuries so that's not a uh, that's not a moment in time injury. That's a oh, I've been you know I've been working in in your garage, Greg, for a couple of months now, and I've just started to get this this hamstring that's a bit tight. Uh, you know I, it warms up. I can then complete the session fine, and then you know it might be a couple of hours later or the next day it's still a bit tight. And it's something that generally people will manage reasonably well. They yep. they might modify a bit of activity, and if we get them early in time, that can be quite an easy fix. The next one, if we go down a little bit, is where the tendon and the muscle insert join, and that's we call that the TJ, the muscular tendinous junction. And that's probably the most commonly hurt when we talk about a hamstring strain in that area. That spot is the most commonly injured. And so then for the people just listening, where's that? Can you explain where that is? That's probably, so if we think of where your, your sit bone is, so that's probably a four or five centimetres down from, from your sitting bone. And there's also, so you've got a proximal and a distal. So you've got one and then you've got one probably 10 centimetres or so up from your knee. So 
they're the most commonly they're the most common hamstring strain. So that's the one you're out doing a you know a, a hit session, doing some speed work, and you feel a bit of a twing. Generally speaking, that's that's what you've heard. The one that's probably been on the increase over the last 10 years, and it's probably because we're looking for it more now, is what we call your intramuscular tendon or the central tendon. And that is where the tendon actually continues down into the muscle. And it's a bit like a strut. So it's a, it's a supporting structure. And they're the nasty ones. They're the ones that are often recurrent. So they're the ones that someone's had a hamstring strain, they've gone to the physio, they've got some strength work, they start to build their speed up and it goes again. And that sort of continues over, you know, three or four times. They're the tricky ones. And that's where they can be hard to diagnose in a clinic so that's oftentimes where we'll, we'll send for an MR and that's where in a in a full-time full-time footy setting sporting setting is we'll often scan most of our hamstring chains to make sure there is no tendon involvement because that is a the different type of collagen and it takes a lot longer to heal so that's where if you see someone with a you know that's been out for eight to twelve plus weeks with a hamstring it's that one speaking of that you often read in the paper or hear in the news oh they've got a type one or a type two like can we define what each of those mean? Top three. Yeah, it used to be uh, it's that that well, scale. Grade that one. So grading, grade versus grades, type. Yes. My apologies. Grade so one. That grade grading two. system is now being phased out a little bit. So we're going more towards it's called the British injury, uh, British athletics injury muscle classification. Well, that's so, way simpler. Way simpler. <laughs> yeah. So what what it used to be is grade one, two, three. So grade one was less than heart less than you know 50 percent of the muscle fibers have been disrupted grade two is sort of 50 to 75 ish percent have been disrupted and then a grade three or a full tear is is you know pretty much the whole Gonskis. The, yeah it's and, and the only way you're grading these is based on mri is that what you're saying no we can grade them we can grade them clinically so clinically? we look at your strength we look at you know have you lost strength is it is the pain on contraction have you lost range in your in your in your straight leg raise versus the other side you know we do bridge tests so we can check all them and we can grade them what they're now moving towards is is a slightly different one where there's a number and a letter and the number corresponds to where in the muscle that's been hurt so whether it's an mtj slash muscle belly or intramuscular tendon and then the letter signifies the, the you know a is the least and then c right. is a is a complete rupture so she's a media are gonna love that one <laughs> it's it's easier well, it's, the, the the media probably grade one two three everyone sort of understands that yeah. so it, it that's for the general public for us we want to know where the muscle tear is so that's where it becomes important as a clinician and you're treating therapists to understand the difference because we treat a we treat an MTJ and a muscle belly very much differently to a to a central tendon issue. Okay, talking about the media, talking about strains and sprains, and they go, oh, they, it's a strain. They haven't they haven't torn it. Strain is a tear. <laughs> You it's sprain like a, an ankle. It's a bit like a break and a fracture. Exactly. They're, they're it's like same. a break and a fracture. They're basically the same thing. Yeah. You know? Okay. Anyway, this is my little bugbear. So just jumping on the, the different sports, you've got rugby, AFL, NRL experience, and Mac, you played in all those areas as well. Surely. Which sports are getting the most hamstring issues? AFL and soccer, just because of the amount oh, sorry, of... I left out A-League, sorry. It does exist in yes. Australia, and I do enjoy the sport. Great game. Yeah, it is a good game, actually. Yeah, so AFL and soccer would be the by far the most prevalent. The reason for that? They're running loads. So if you look at a rugby league player, they'll run between and, and rugby union. Well, it's been a while since I've been in rugby union, but you're looking at probably six to eight Ks in one of those. If yeah. you're looking at AFL, midfielders are uh, completing up to 15K a game. So if you can imagine going for a 15K road run and every 200 metres, you got to run down, pick up a ball, kick it on the run, get tackled, get back up. That's a fairly, fairly exhausting process. So the skills that are required are kicking on the run, um, ground ball pickups at speed places the hamstring at, at, a, at a much higher risk of injury versus league where, you know, our outside backs are probably our biggest culprits for hamstring strains. And that's just because they have to, them, their efforts are more intense when they have to do them versus okay. a, a middle player who is... Adam makes a good point. Like in AFL, if, you, if you're bending over to 
pick up a ground ball. So you know how I talked about hip extension and, yep. knee and all that terminal swing phase. So put into the mix an additional hip flexion. So you're in a bent forward position. Now you've actually got more load applied to that proximal tendon of the long head of the bicep femoris. So you've got increased load. So yeah. you know the, the mechanisms around the game will increase the propensity for that. Plus you think about running single leg stance and kicking, the mechanics of that. Single Like go up, take a mark, land on one leg, for example, and then have to take off. Like there's a someone's on your back. Yeah, you know, there's a whole lot of increased loading parameters around that that, that are going to increase your risk factors around. And AFL, I mean, they, they have a ton of hammy injuries. It's it's a bit of a catch twenty two because I, as I said, as a, the strength conditioning coach in me takes it very personally when people tear their hamstrings because I I think there are injuries that occur because of those sorts of mechanisms. Someone's on your back, whatever it might be, collisions, all that sort of stuff. But in terms of the running loads, that's where there's I, I think there's an onus on the strength conditioning coaches of the world. We've got to get that right because I think we can have a positive impact on on the number of injuries we see around loading and and gym-based loading as well to not overload the muscle and put it in a position where it's in a pre-fatigue state that might lend itself to increased risk, basically. Mm Yeah, so I think we can we can get around that, but the early diagnosis is key. Yeah, Adam talked about the intra intramuscular tendon versus the I guess the tendon MTJ. proper, the MTJ itself. Yeah, so and that leads into a, a bit of consideration. It's complicated, right? But then you think about the the morphology of muscle, and we talk about pination angle of the insertion of muscles on the tendon. Think of a feather, mm-hmm. right? If you get a feather, it'll have a central tendon. Well, it's not a tendon, yeah. but whatever the middle of a yep. ten, of a feather is, and the little what are the, what do you call them on a feather? But it's feathers. Or, Whatever it is, right? But they're on a little angle, right? So we call we call that the physiological cross-sectional area of a muscle. So it's how densely packed the contractile muscle fibers are on that tendon. And so if you think about bicep femoris, you think about a muscle that has, we call it bipennate. So that on both sides of the central tendon, there are muscle fibers, as opposed to maybe something that's a fusiform, like a, a sartorius or, something, or a gracilis or something like that, that is the muscles are aligned in a completely different longitudinal manner. So, you know, there's a, there's a number of layers here to further complicate the the mechanisms and the healing associated with it, and that's why the, that's why if you look over the the injury statistics over the last twenty years in the AFL and and NRL would be probably pretty similar. There we haven't really changed a whole lot with our hamstring injury rates. We've we've decreased the recurrences. We take probably a little bit longer. We I think you know we're there. We're keeping them out for a little bit longer to make sure that to try and decrease the recurrence rate. But the, the incidence is still pretty high, and it's because of the multifactorial nature of it. Yeah, of and the other the, complication with the re-injury is you know. I don't know if you want to dig any deeper into the fascicle stuff, but the other thing is around innovation. So if you think about the long head and the short head of the bicep femoris, they are innovated by different branches effectively of the sciatic nerve. So your long head of your bicep femoris is innovated, which means the nerve supply comes from the tibial portion of the sciatic nerve. The short head is innovated by the common perineal branch. So you've got one muscle getting input from two different branches of one nerve. So when we have a, if there's a dyssynchronous or an uncoordinated impulse of that nerve to that the two branches of one muscle, that's a problem. And so what we can see, if you've got injury to the long head, the short head's been fine the whole time. So there's no real impact on the short head, but the long head's coming back from injury and there's scarring and all this sort of stuff, inflammation and guarding and all these things that we see when an injury occurs, then that's a that's an issue. That's something to consider with your rehab so that you, you know, you're you able to get exercises or implement exercises that might work the long head as opposed to the short head. Uh, and so we can play around with, that's when we get into a conversation 
that I have a lot around glutes is femur on pelvis versus pelvis on femur mechanics. So I'm talking thrust versus maybe a, a, a single leg back extension or a, or a bilateral back extension or a reverse hyper type movement. And so we can look to target different portions of muscle, even with internal external rotation of, of the lower shank, you can- We can bias, you can we bias, can bias medial, we can bias lateral. Yeah, you can say the lateral complex bicep femoris versus tendinosus membranosus, just by fairly subtle shifts in the external or internal rotation of the, of the foot. Okay. Or the lower limb, lower shank. So there's some pretty cool stuff we can do about that. What else are you doing that strength and balance? Is that the right words to use there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what do you go to in terms of your, your rehab type things? Or do you want to talk about the Nordic? I mean, it's we pretty talk possible. About, yeah, we can talk pretty, about the pretty Nordic. Popular. Yeah, like the Nordic's been around for a while. And there's lots of, if you've been on Twitter over the last five years, there's, there's been What's that. Twitter? Yeah, I don't know. He means Instagram. <laughs> yeah, okay. Some of us are still on Twitter. <laughs> but no, there's been a lot of wars between, you know, the, the Vern Gambetters and the Franz Bosch of the world versus. What are they? They're people who are have a level of expertise in the field. Vern's got a track and field background as does Freen. So they're they're very much trained the muscle, um, trained the movement, not the muscle. Uh, and the Nord, Nordic exercise is very much a, a, a train the muscle type exercise. So I think you need a you certainly need a combination of all of it. The Nord the Nordic exercise has been shown to to decrease injury rates. So I think you always keep an open mind. There's no such thing as a bad exercise. It's just a poorly prescribed one. So I think the Nordboard, ha- the Nordic, sorry, and the Nordboard is the device where we measure the strength. So you're doing exercise. Nordic exercises pre-rehab or are you doing it as part of, yep? No, we do ours. We'll have them as part of the gym program. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of evidence to suggest they, they do change fascicle length, even though it's a, an exercise over the knee, which tends to bias more the, the medial, so the semitendinosus ex- muscle. I think you need a combination of, of knee exercises that work the knee, as in a leg curl, a Nordic, and exercises that work over the hip, your single leg back extension, your RDL. So I think you need a combination of all of them. Yep. And and with that, you can also then look at speed of movement, pairing you for what you need to do. So if you're a speed athlete, a sprint athlete, you need to be doing exercise in the gym that are also working over that sort of speed of movement. And so where the Nordic has, I think, lost its way a little bit, in that situation that Adam's just talking about there, absolutely Control. there is a justification yeah. for having it in there, right? And we know that most people at, at the elite level or similar, like you see on Instagram people going all the way down, coming all the way up. I reckon I've only seen half a dozen footballers able to do that ever. Preston Campbell, remember Preston? Yeah. He weighed about 68 kilos, Preston. He could do them all day, you know, whereas if you got some big unit who's 120 kilos, he's not going to go all the way down to the floor and come all the way back. If he does, he's a freak. And I mean that as a compliment. The the benefit to the Nordic is the eccentric component that lends itself to the fascicle length adaptations that reduce the risk of injury for tearing your hamstring. Now, if you're a running athlete of anything, hockey, basketball, it doesn't matter, enormous applications, right? But if you're a bodybuilder, you, you say to yourself, why do I really need that? It's not going to give me a large amount of cross-sectional area mm-hmm. necessarily. There are other exercises that are much lower risk that can develop hamstring cross-sectional area. So, you know, a leg curl will do a better job than a Nordic for, for increasing the size of your hammy. So that's where I think there's we should be cautious in the in the mainstream health and fitness industry around, I suppose, on a shopping around and just grabbing exercises from one environment and thinking, oh, yeah, that looks pretty good. You know, I feel that in my hammies. My hammies are sore for five days after I do it. Absolutely, because it's a completely foreign stimulus, huge eccentric load, large amount of delayed onset of muscle soreness, DOMS, which comes from microtrauma, not from lactate. But anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that in our next podcast about yeah. myths. You know, you, you, you know, call it like, I guess, benefit to risk ratio. Because one of the things we can see is an increase. You'll tear your hamstring. If you just walk into a gym and try and do a whole lot of Nordics, you're probably going to tear your hammy. 
economy. You know, if you're over overweight, deconditioned, and things like that. So you've got to you've got to have a strategy around the implementation of that. And this is what I see. A lot of people get on Instagram, and I know I'm on a rant, but they'll get on Instagram. They'll see someone who's in great shape, absolutely doing wonderful exercises like the Nordic hamstring, and they go, oh, "I want to do that." You got to. You can't. You know, you can't just go and do that. You've got to work up to it. Yep. And some people will never get there. Um, anyway. That's, that's my little rant. But so there's, there's a range of things that have to be considered there with regard to, you know, what we do. What, what, are, you, what are your top... What are your top five? Ham- if you want to, if you want to develop hamstrings and mitigate risk in the hamstrings, what would you be putting into the programs? If I'm talking the the population that I've dealt with, yeah. which is elite athletes, probably my number one. I I love the single leg back extension and also the like an RDL and even a single leg RDL if you've got the pelvic control to do it. There's lots of variations we can do. So we've got the one exercise, but we can put we can change speed of movement. We can do the range. We can rotate around it. So I love those two, and they're obviously more going to be biased towards the long header bicep which is the injury that I see most commonly. The My two exercises for the medial hamstrings would be, like I do like a Nordic in my population because we know it, it there's a, there's a, there is a, there is evidence that it decreases our injury risk. That's what that makes me look good. And then as simple as a leg curl, we can still play around with foot position like Maka was saying. We can internally rotate, we can externally rotate to bias the muscle grip that we want. So they're, they're my probably four go-tos. I have started using a supine bridge, which is a relatively new exercise, I suppose, which is just where you've got your, shoulder blades on the bench and your feet are on another bench and you uh, hold yourself up. So I quite like that one for an isometric component and some changeover, changing legs, so single leg changing from right to left. So they're probably my five go-to exercises for hamstrings. So glute bridges, I mean, so everyone's about the thrust, right? Everyone in the health and fitness industry, I'll bring it over to the health and fitness industry. Everyone's about the thrust. So when I say glute bridge, I'm talking about your shoulders on the floor yep. and your feet are on the floor. Whereas a glute thrust, some people are calling it a scorcher. So Contreras and that, that crew called it, I think they call it a scorcher, where your shoulders are on a bench, so you're elevated. So if you do your glute bridge, you're still going to get, actually a lot of stuff that says a glute bridge from the floor will give you much larger hamstring component, even than say a, a squat or even into some of the deadlift movements. Right. So, yeah, yeah. So you'll, you'll still get some component of that versus the scorcher where your shoulders are on, are on a bench. So there's a few different things you can do that. Deadlifts are a Hammy must really, and the Romanian variations on that with a slight bend in the knee and things like that, and that's where progression is usually in rehab. It's and Adam can contribute as he as as he sees fit. But so we look at getting range. So if we don't, and you could probably talk about this, mate. But you know, one of the things we need, if you tear your hamstring, right, you'll have a lot of guarding and you'll have some disused atrophy. One of the things with disused atrophy, what I mean is if you don't use it or lose it, philosophy in terms of and just on that atrophy too, you've also got a a neuromuscular inhibition too. Correct. So uh, you have a decrease in firing. So if you've hurt your hamstring, we have a decreased firing and decreased activation of that muscle. So that also that also lead to selective atrophy. So you can be doing all of your exercises, but if you're actually not that long at a bicep, if it's not coming on and everything else is taking its oh, uh, taking it taking its load, we're not getting. We're going to return that athlete with a still a, a weak and, a and weak the, link. And the uh, I guess the bias towards that is your is your higher motor motor unit. So your fast twitch muscle fibers. So your type two muscle fibers will atrophy or shrink more rapidly than your type 1s. So there, there's a strength and a power component that comes with that and even a cross-sectional area issue with that. You know, these are things that you've got to take into consideration. I've completely lost my train of thought. doesn't really matter. With your rehab, oh, that's what I was going to say. In terms of looking at you know, unloaded to loaded, you know, stable bases of support, we look at looking at getting range because if you don't have range, then you know, you're, you're going to load the muscle in a compromised position effectively. So we look at inner range and, get, and getting range back then. We look I'll at, also start with 
an isometric. So yep. we can generally start them, you know, even two days post injury. Yep. We'll start them on some isometric, which is just where the muscle is not changing length. We can do that so a number of different ways. Well, isometric increase in tension without a change in length. Yep. So we can find areas sort of we can. Up, but you can yeah. What we do is we find areas where they're, they're where they're pain free, and we can yep. load it in a pain free environment. So we're not having an increased amount of time where we're not getting mm. some strength in. Yeah, and you move in from from sort of a maybe body weight into loaded and then you might go back to more complex movement patterns and then load them with complex movement patterns. It's the same with, with running type of activities. We tre- we tend to progress them. If you can't walk pain-free, you definitely can't run, right? And if you can't, you know, then we talk about the term awareness. So when they're in their rehab running progressions, we want to keep them in that, that stage where they're not really aware. So that the progressions are lower intensity up into higher intensity and then into changes, acceleration, deceleration efforts. Because if you want to really load up your hamstring get into deceleration did i sound like i had a stutter then no but you know so backwards running on a treadmill things like that will tend to really load up your hammy so there's a lot of different activities you can do yeah i I tend to try that the other day backward running i'm not recommending you do it but i see it happen all the time it's that's why i mentioned it (laughs) yeah if you want to hurt yourself yeah do it really fast that's what i thought exactly what i thought none of my boys do that but we generally go with as soon as they can walk pain-free we'll get them to walk and i'll get them to walk laps of the oval for 30 minutes an hour mm-hmm. and then we go from that to a walk jog so they might you know a, a time 30 seconds on 30 second 30 second jog 30 second walk or jog the side jog the uh, the sideline walk the try line or variations mm-hmm. of that and then we just gradually increase them yeah. i think too we talk a lot about in hamstrings you talk a lot about exercises and we talk about gym stuff but one of the things i think we do quite poorly is our rehab running and getting them ready to go and i think that you've, we've got to have a systematic plan in place that we gradually expose them to to higher intensity in their running. I think, you know, if we go back to sort of that acute chronic workload stuff, you, you're prepared for what you're, you can do anything that you're prepared for. So we've got to make sure that we don't increase their sprint work too quickly. And I think that can be, we sort of get them jogging and we go, yep, they're, yeah, they're good to go, go on. You can now go and sprint yeah. and it's it's not as easy as that. Yeah, and you would get slammed with it all the time. It's So what's your protocol? Everyone says, I get asked all the time, yeah. So there's no cookbook approach to this. I mean, okay. you can you definitely have your, your general plan around exactly what Adam just said around progressions, but what will you'll need for your hammy will be different to mine, will be different to Adam's, whatever it might might be. So And that's it's a, it's a process, you right? You start with the end in mind. So I yeah. know exactly where, you know, all of our boys will wear GPS, so I know exactly on average how many Ks they'll do in a game, how many of those are... Uh, high intensity running meters so Mm -hmm. then we need to match that to their rehab program so they don't come back until they've reached those goals so it's really important and anyone and anyone even the weekend warrior or the or the recreational athlete can can do that they know where they've got to get to so then it's a matter of 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 working our way towards that in a Mm. in a sufficient time frame so how much time are the boys spending with you once they do tear something oh as if with a physio we'll be with them every day and every club every club and every organization will be slightly different with how they do it but i'll take them and it depends to a grade one um, we've had a couple this year where they didn't miss a they didn't miss a game, mm-hmm. and others where they might miss one. We had one who missed eight weeks with a actually no more like ten weeks with an intramuscular tendon. So it all depends on getting the diagnosis right and then working from working from there. So they'll be with us every day. We're checking them every day. We're monitoring their strength, monitoring their GPS. Yeah, they're with us for a fair bit. It's a holistic approach, Greg. Yeah, you're all over that, aren't you? Love it, mate. Mm. It's a journey. All right, you get on a you get on a rehab journey. <laughs> you love that word, journey. Yeah. 
One of the best. So, guys, hamstring masterclass for all those of us that don't have elite sporting scientists, doctors, physios, masseuse behind us. What do we do? If I'm and I'm, I'm talking about the person who goes, I'm going to run half marathon. I'm going to run, you know, the typical. I want a journey. Got said that for you, Mac. But yeah. you got to train for something, and people look for events to train for, and, and yep. you see it all the time. People start running, and you know, if you're not a runner and you run your first K and you finish. When you get past that oxygen is burning my lungs part and you start to actually pick a bit of speed up and you're running on the side of roads and all that, like what should we be doing? I think one thing we do quite poorly generally is strength work. Yep. So I think the, and I see it all the time, especially in cars, but also in hamstrings where someone will tear their, you know, have some hamstring pain and then rest it and yep. they'll rest it for a week or two. And then they feel, oh, hammy feels Good great. Go, start running. Then they go back to where they finished from. And what we haven't done is, so we've got all those things we've mentioned. We've mentioned neuromuscular inhibition, atrophy. So we've now taken a muscle that's even weaker and then loading it back up again. So I think having some background level of strength involved. So if you are planning on doing a half marathon, a marathon, it's giving yourself enough time. And you've and you've also haven't done a lot in the preceding years. It's really important that you give yourself enough time to get some strength back into you, and also gradually increase your activity level. You see so many, especially around you know getting to this time of year, and also in January where the, all the New Year's resolutions come in, and they go, oh, "I'm going to go yeah, and get some I'm shoes, going go to, for a run. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to have 45. I'm going to do five classes yeah. a week, and that's great, but." You've done a bit. You've bitten off a bit more than you can chew. Yeah, and I would rewind that back a little bit. One of the things that maybe it's an urban myth around stretching. Don't stretch. If you like, what I find a lot of people. This is where I'm heading to. Like, what is an average punter do they stretch? So if you before, if you hurt your after, hammy, right? Yeah. If, you, if you tear your hammy, one of the ways to try and avoid tearing your hammy is avoid scenarios where you like. For example, we live on the Gold Coast, right? So people want to go and train down the beach. Yep. So training on sand is a really unstable surface. If you are uh, relatively deconditioned, that is an, a, a greater stimuli on top of a new stimuli anyway around loading of your hamstring because the, the sand gives way yep. behind you, right? So you get an a, a accentuated extension moment at triple extension, which is through ankle, knee, and hip, right? Yep. So one of the things when I'm dealing with rugby league players and AFL players, big units, I, I try not to have... I try and have a minimum number of variables within a, uh, running anyway. So what I'm saying is I don't want to go and run on concrete, bitumen, grass, and sand four days in a row. It's four different stimulus. Think of them as Formula One, you know, motor cars, right? I want to keep them in a pretty stable environment. So let's just avoid these the variables uh, and let's keep it pretty consistent. Now, if you're a beach sprinter, that's different. You need to yep. sprint on the beach. But average person doesn't necessarily need to do that. The other thing that I see people doing in, in the common, in mainstream health and fitness, is they tear their hamstring and they stretch the shit out of it. Don't do that. You know, if, you, if you've if you already got a, an inflamed, maybe it's really acute and still bleeding, what's going to happen if you keep stretching it? It's going to bleed. Don't avoid, I mean, don't avoid it. Don't stretch the hell out of it, right? You want to you wanna maintain movement. So you want to have some dynamic movement of the muscle to the point where you feel it, okay? We call that inner range type movement at either end of the spectrum. So I, I might lie on the floor and I might put my hand, uh, like I call them 90-90s, but lie on the floor, bring your hip up into 90 degrees of uh, flexion, grab behind your knee and just straighten out your leg and you'll feel a stretch in your hamstring. You do that to the point maybe where you just feel awareness of it, right? But you're not going to make it any worse. I've maintained some movement. I've maintained some range, things like that. When they're tendon, tendon strains, and there's a lot of work being done on tendon rehab, and we know a lot about tendons and how tendons adapt to load. Tendons don't like large amounts of change. By that I mean the worst thing you can probably do is rest something completely, complete rest. Now, that gets a little bit tricky because if you don't have a lot of expertise around you, you know, how much or not enough is a 
bit of a variable, but in a high performance environment, you know, in terms of injury risk, we load tendons most days. So whether you do a, a, a low, moder- uh, moderate or high loading scheme, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of do that in an undulating type of fashion because tendons don't like to be overloaded and they don't like being underloaded. Okay. So they need consistency of load. So for the average person who decides, I want to... 10Ks. I want to run 10Ks. Yep. Don't start your training program to run 10Ks by running 10Ks. Yep, very cool. Right? Start at a K. Let's get through it and let's see how you pull up. Let's do that for a week or two. Then we'll progress to 2Ks and 3Ks, 4Ks. Set yourself a goal so you've got enough time to get there and mix it up. Like training surfaces are huge. Like running on bitumen yeah, in, in, up, your chuck, in, your, mm. yeah, in your basketball shoes is not the way to go. So that's Spe- one of the variables. Spe- we might talk about shoes later if you guys can. I'm not a podiatrist. Yeah, but, but no, yeah. Like, yeah, stay in your lane. Got yeah, it. I'm in my lane um, <laughs> heavily. So say I am someone who's going to start a 10K journey because you like your journeys back how do i know if i've done my hammy you often see people running and they're on the side of the road and they're, they're bending over like they're stretching their hammy or they're stretching their calves yeah like, again it depends what a, grade, a, a grade one i've had have had people that haven't noticed till the next day so yeah. especially if they've gone for a late afternoon early evening run they're fine they so get home no magical pop no so no. sometimes with those and no, that's what magical we call, pop is something more yeah. serious than yeah. a grade one yep. yeah mm. so if we go back to the old terminology that'd be a grade one you yep. know or you might go to you know, you know your home having dinner having a shower and you think oh geez my hammy feels a bit funny there how's it feeling like what's happening painful tight hmm. like someone sticking a needle in it or uh, like no but if you've got something twinging, that's hanging around right if mm. you if you've got twinging is probably a good twinge word, side sensation yeah. so there's a difference between muscle soreness yes this is what i'm trying to establish yeah mm. so the difference if it's okay so if you go and do a new gym program you can expect to have a level of muscle soreness Absolutely. right but it should dissipate within a relatively short period of time let's say 48 hours 72 hours if something hangs around and every like let's say you go and do a brand new gym program and everything's sore I've got sore quads, I've got sore hammies, calves, the works, right? If it doesn't resolve within, say, three to four days and my hammy's still really sore or really catchy when I walk or when I have to do something, then there's a likelihood, and it's not particularly diagnostic, but there's a likelihood that I've perhaps overloaded my hamstring. And the other thing too is with DOMS, you should reasonably expect it on both sides. So if you've got yeah, DOMS in one side, oh, that, that's a... That exactly, right? If you, if you do a new, new gym program and only my left hamstring is sore and my right one's fine, unless you did a whole lot of single leg training, you probably expect consistency throughout in yeah. terms of the level of soreness. So things like that will will be indicative of oh, probably done too much. And then it's about acute management. You, you know, your first aid, your rest, ice, compression, elevation, all that sort of stuff. And so... And with rest, uh, we talk relative rest. Relative rest. So. I don't mean go and sit on a couch and do nothing for five days. It's still walking, still do all those sort of things. But I think that's where people perhaps don't get that acute management right and it'll just exacerbate the, the condition and you know so unfortunately in the clinic I'll often see the person that's done it three or four times Yeah. so it's not until then that the it's penny a real drops grind yeah whereas yeah. sometimes too if we can get them in early we can set up a program we can set some time frames for them too we kind of yeah. know okay if you've we've got this type of presentation it's going to take you this many days or weeks to get back to where you want to be so I think that's also important we get that accurate diagnosis first and we can set up time frames and then everyone because what we don't want to see is that person who thinks it's going to be a two week injury and it ends up being a four to six that that can be really frustrating, especially when you're w- trying to get into a new routine. So I think there, it's really it's nice for us to see them early, and we can put in plans in place for them to make sure they're getting you know doing the right things, getting the right amount of strength, and they're not doing too little or too much. So say you and I are going to go run the 10k at the Gold Coast Marathon, for you example. No, yeah, I know you're not. Let's just say we are, and so you're not treating me; you're running with me. So we we're not doing anything before we run. We're just going to go light jog into. Depends what the session is. Yeah. If we're just going, if so I'm just, just 
you got to warm up. I'm just running. Like I'm just all I'm doing for my 10k training you'll need is 50, running. You'll need an hour warm up on your legs. I'm I need joking. a lot of encouragement too. But <laughs> I'm just trying to for the people at home that just run. Like everyone's New Year. See, like the, you said, the other thing is this: Why are you running? Like, because yeah, I, I know that's why I'm not looking at you, Macca, because we've had this discussion. But uh, yeah. so this is what I would say to the people: because people want to do a 10k run, that's why they're running. Yeah. I know, I know you don't agree, but there's I know there's people that want to do that. Yeah, and there's lots but of people that don't run. In the, the other time of the year, they only run for this. Yeah, they're the ones I'm trying to. I'm talking to the people who think they're running to lose right weight, though. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone oh, who right. wants to run 10k's and they've given themselves five or six weeks. Okay. So obviously, at home, we might have a band, we might have some ice, we might have a band at home. Yeah, I do. Live band. Yeah, that's it. Every morning it gets up and plays. Uh, <laughs> so that, that's what I. <laughs> so that's what I'm getting at. Like I'm trying to pull this down from elite level to everyday punter that wants to go for a run. And I'm not talking someone who runs for life. I'm talking about somebody who wants to start the journey, Mac, to the 10K. Yeah. So it's day one and there's a good chance something's going to get that little twinge or whatever you, you called it before because... And and if I, I'm looking at that person, so if I'm developing a program for them... I'll now you live in the street and they say, let's go for a run. So you've just started running. You've hmm. had no time planning with them. You just, let's start running. I would never do that. Yeah, okay. I'm always a plan. That's but right. look, if... We are running in a lane though because we're running roads. Where are we at here? Have. Yeah. So I'm just trying to work this out to at a basic level. Like, well, there's no reason why you can't start. It's a prevention too. This isn't cure. Like I'm talking about. Yeah. Should I be rolling before I run? Should I stretch? Should I should I ice up after every run? Like it's just those mm. questions I want to ask you. Yeah. yeah. For I, the basic everyday person at home. Yeah. Wants look, to know more. I'm I. If we're trying to get someone active, I, I whatever makes whatever gets them active. I so if they don't like that's how I do it. But that's not nice. a bit that. of a <laughs> bit of hydroxyburn shred. Oh, oh, good product to our face. Sponsor the Titans, I'll be happy you said that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, I interrupted. I was about to say that. This conversation <laughs> deteriorated yeah. really quickly. Podcast for I'm talking about someone wants to start training for a 10K, they don't have a coach, they don't have a PT, they've just gone, let's sign up at work. My general rule is always do a little bit less than what you think you can do. So that's, that's easy want, for me. That's most people I run yep, with, actually. Yep. Uh, if we're looking for what do they want to do before, do what they want to do and what's going to make that easy. If they like to roll, roll. If they want to do some band work and get some glute devations and glute priming, great. If you just want to go out and do, do a 3k road run i don't think you need to do a whole lot of prep for that because you're not going to be running at a, at a at a speed that is going to put your hamstrings at risk but if i'm not going to tell someone you need to do a half hour routine before they run if they don't want to do it because i want to make it as easy for them as they can i don't have any hard or fast rules with that if if i've had a look at them and i know that they've got some impairments that we need to work on then absolutely they'll they're going to do some stuff a little bit beforehand and a little bit afterwards but if they're if they don't have any any issues to start with i don't tend to make i've got no hard and fast rules on that so i'm just going to talk about they're probably not at risk of tearing their hamstring Mm. well it's it's interesting you say that because like some i'll use myself as an example don't run i do a lot of that hit style training which you wouldn't call hit but i call it hit at my age it's hit so every now and then we'll say let's go do a 10k or sorry do a 10k or that the first one kills like pure pain Mm. two k's into it i cannot get enough oxygen through my chest but you know within a week or two you're you're hitting that in half the time you hit Mm. and i'm talking somebody sits in an office all day and doesn't Mm. run and you're hitting some pretty big speeds you're you're definitely running faster and that's when someone who you don't feel your hammies in the first couple apart from just the pain of running but then you go for that jog after work where you feel good and geez that's a load thing though by the sounds of it like that's what i'm talking about like what what do we do for people like i think you've got a and that's where probably i'll always have a plan because Mm -hmm. i don't want to then just go oh and then come up with whatever i feel like doing on the day if i'm not prepared for that but that's that's the really big key for us is or for me is to make sure that you're you're what you're doing is you're prepared for so if you haven't done speed work for a while we need to build into that so we need to gradually take you up to you know 70 75 i'm generally a 
sort of 5% kind of guy. So gradually do that over a couple of weeks. So if you go out and do something that you're not prepared for, that's when we're going to come in. And that not be, might not be a hammy issue, that might be a calf, but that's that's where we've got to be really careful of is making sure that we take our time to get to that goal and don't try to achieve it tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I'm trying to get at. What, do, what things should we do from a preventative side on a daily basis to assist? Like, should we be rolling after every run? No, okay. I, I, well, I don't think so. The thing for me, I, I try not, don't, just keep in the, in the back of your mind, I always say don't triple load a muscle in 24 hours. Yeah. Right. So if you're, there's a lot of people train a couple of times a day they might do a morning gym session go for a run at night another morning session things like that you might do a you might do a group fitness class on a monday morning yep. you might get home from work and you go oh, i feel pretty good i'm feel gonna good go to the run. gym again yeah. or i'm gonna go for a run yep. and i'm gonna do another morning hit session the next morning right so let's say that the the vast majority of the exercises in that group fitness session were lower limb based so i've loaded my hammies monday morning i've gone for a run on monday afternoon loaded my hammies again and then i've done it again on the tuesday morning so yep. in 24 hours you've done three workouts right so that that's a lot i think is about just plan your week a little bit around what you want to do. So now, different if you're going to do a swimming session or something that loads the upper body in the gym, that's different. But I, I, my rule is no triple, no triple load in 24 hours, and you can mitigate a lot of the risk around that. Again, sometimes people don't realise if they go and do a, a high intensity interval session, group fitness, organised group fitness session, they may end up doing a whole lot more than they thought they were going to do before they got there. Particularly if you're not, you know, if it's just turn up and do the workout. Yeah, exactly. Yep. You don't know what you're going to do. So yeah, I think there's there's some issues around that. Hydration status is huge. Yeah, so um, stay hydrated. It's a good yeah, one. absolutely. You want to keep your hydration status up. I think what we do know is that stretching does nothing for recovery, mm-hmm. right? So st- you stretch stretching is something that you will do to increase range, and we do it when you're warm after a workout because that's when we got a lot of blood flow to the muscle and we can increase the r- the range of movement, right? So, but in terms of bona fide healing, stretching is not a, a modality to increase healing in a muscle. Okay, foam rolling. It's going to increase blood flow to the area. Maybe there's a some sort of you know uh, relaxation effect with that as well. Good, you know, mm-hmm. there's no reason why you can't. You can foam roll as much as you like. You're probably not going to hurt yourself. It's going to hurt, you know, yeah. if you if you're doing with trigger points and things like that. But there's no reason why you can't do that. If you, if you like to foam roll, foam roll. You know, I, yeah. I don't I don't have a problem with that. But it's it's more around have a little bit of a method to your madness. And if you're just going to go, well, let's like if you're going to do the five, uh, 10k runs and you give yourself six weeks to do it, you're probably going to have more of an overload type of injury than you are a, an acute muscle rupture you're probably more likely mm. to suffer from a you know a tendinopathy or you know or a stress reaction or something like that you know that, that's probably going to be more likely to happen particularly if you're running on bitumen and you're 100 and what 10 105 yeah. kilos you know that's that's there's a lot of pounding that occurs through the lower limb with that so yeah i mean it, it's there's no one answer this is why i'm probably struggling to give you an answer on yeah. the spot it's probably progress into it do it somewhat conservatively think about how far you're going to run, how intensely you're going to run. There's absolutely no, to get going, walk, jog type scenarios are really good. So let's walk for, for two minutes. Let's jog for two minutes, walk, jog, walk, jog, really effective. And then you just bring back the walk time and you progressively jog more and walk less, you know, things like that. There's lots of little devices, lots of tech. you got your Fitbits and you, you do your heart rate and you might aim for, you know, I want to hit, my target is I want to hit 145 beats per minute. I want to stay there for three minutes. You've got your watch on, happy days, wait till your heart rate drops back to 120, then go again. You know, you don't have 
have to have a trainer to do that sort of stuff. You can play around with that pretty yeah. nicely, you know. And then in terms of your recovery, just, you know, that's another whole podcast on recovery, but what am I trying to recover from and what am I recovering for? So is it, have I just done a massive strength session where I've got some micro trauma, I'm going to have some DOMs, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be pretty dodgy for the next 72 hours. Well, I need to rehydrate, I need to refuel. Maybe I need some complementary modalities. Maybe I need some heat, maybe I need some cryo, you know, who knows, right? What is it going now when you feel that little twinge when you do go for a run and do you come home, you ice If you think you've torn a muscle? Yeah. I still go with ice. There is, Definitely. there is, that's, again, there's two, two schools of thought, but I'm still in the ice category. I'm yeah. still in the ice compress. And how are you running that? Depends on the body. If it's a hamstring, I'll probably go 10 to 15 minutes. If it's a more superficial, like a knee, I'd probably go probably 10 minutes on on, on the hour. And, and get into then your cryokinetics. So if it's a hammy, I'm sitting on a bag of ice and I'm going into flexion extension. So I've got an element of movement with, with, the, with the cryo. Okay. You know, the only time I tell people, if you're trying to increase muscle mass, which is a completely different conversation around hypertrophy and training, we don't want to mitigate inflammation, right? So we don't want to go and jump in an ice bath yep. after a strength session right different to if i'm been out in 35 degrees celsius and i want to drop my core temp yep. really different so but for hit for i'm definitely in the hot ice camp for my soft tissue injury acutely because i've had a thousand of them and it works really well for me the usual type of thing heat down the track no problems at all you know after maybe day three it depends a bit on the inflammation and how the inflammation's tracking and also too if you're actually doing some movement that that generates heat in a muscle yeah, so you don't necessarily sure. need to go and heat that after you yeah so if exercised. it's if it's swollen if it's red if it's hot they're probably your key signs that it's still inflamed so don't put more heat on something mm. like that right that, that you'll go with your cold with a little bit of compression and we've talked about we've done some research in the compression garment space and we've we've identified with body science compression garments that they will facilitate the healing process the recovery process post-workout they're they're a great recovery modality as effective as the cold water immersion okay. i don't know if you remember that work we I did do, in yeah. 2010 published that work Th that gives us an element of because it's graded compression as opposed to some of the other garments in the world we're getting that increased venous return. We're getting increased turnover, things like that. What I tell people, if, you, if you're if you going to, cool down is important. You know, I would say if you're going to start your jog, I'll walk the last couple of minutes of it, you know, finish with a with a walk yep. rather than jog, 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 stop. Yep. So let's cool down with a with a walk, something like that, you know, just and, and rehydrate. And in terms of hydration status, if your urine is brown, the color of that coffee, you probably need some fluids, right? It shouldn't glow in the dark, even if you're drinking Barocas. Yeah, that's nasty. That's but, nasty. you know, it should be, <laughs> it should be, that's going on. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you go and see, go and see a doctor. Cool. Unless you're drinking mud, you know it should be relatively clear. Yep. You can track that pretty well. Yeah, you know, things like that, and so that'll give you an indication of hydration status. And yeah, I think that you're probably on your way to to being pretty responsible about reducing risk. Any readings we should look at if we're really interested in the hammies? You've mentioned uh, a few people's names. Yeah, we'll yeah. There's some work by down. Dave Opar, and that we can certainly post those. They're, they're literary reviews of a number of studies, and mm. they're good work. They're a few years old now, but still really relevant. And there's a lot of work by. Um, uh, Jill Cook, Craig Purdom, again, Aussies in the tendon space around tendon loading and how to try and avoid overload and underload tendons. It's complicated. I think uh, there's a little common sense element to it as well, right? And that is, if you want to run a marathon, don't go and run a marathon. You've got to build up yeah, to it. Absolutely. So, yeah, and that's, you know, that, that, that's common sense more than anything. And uh, just last thing, I know it's not to do with your lanes, but outside of uh, what you guys have been talking about, are you changing, is a dietitian changing diets and that type of thing? I think for us, we make sure that if there's a decrease in energy expenditure, we have a subsequent 
decrease in, in energy in caloric intake. Yeah, I think that's uh, we've we've we try a few different things. We've we try um, there's now a collagen mix using a bit of gelatin. Wow. We've started using that for some of our especially our tenon boys. But it's just making sure. I think that's making sure that you know if we've got body composition issues, especially with some of our you know bigger boys, that we make sure we stay on top of that. So that when when they're coming back to run, we haven't added you know a few grams of fat to their body mass. But yeah, there's there's I think just making sure that. Uh, that I think that's the biggest point for me. Anything for you, Mac? No, nah, that's about it. I mean, I, I prefer him. Uh, yeah, there's, in terms of nutrition for healing, absolutely. And it's not my area, but uh, you know, there's there's good capacity there for getting your your sports dietitian to contribute to different. I don't know. I don't even know what the you know whether there's a current pro, um, supplement or whatever. There's actually some good collagen proteins coming out. Yeah, some, some good, good collagen proteins different and different peptides, things. Yeah. yeah, and so I, you know, I'll be looking in that space as well. Get some information around what's the best bet. I, I don't think totally off the reservation, but you know whether or not one dietary modality or another might increase your risk. I've seen no evidence of mm-hmm. that. So you can be uh, your diurnal modified keto with targeted intermittent fasting without too many problems. Jogger, he left jogger off the end. Jogger, <laughs> man, my cardio. I walked from the car inside. That was my cardio. Love and it. Stairs too. It was stairs. You need an elevator in here, man. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Well, Mac, it was great to have you on again, mate. Adam, thanks for coming on board. Pleasure. Enjoyed that. We will put some links down to. Have you got a website or anything? I don't at the moment. You don't. Okay. So we'll just. The Doctor Mac. Got about seven hundred and eighty-five followers. <laughs> Let's get it to eight hundred. Good having you on, boys. Thanks heaps. Rock on. Today's podcast was brought to you by our partners in Fit, Happy, and Healthy ASN Nutrition Warehouse, DY Discount Vitamins, Fat Burners Only, Evelyn Fay. Mr. Supplement or find a retailer online at bodyscience.com.au forward slash retailers.